Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. People see through this. You had a chance and you lost. If you want to pick judges from your way of thinking, then you better win an election. President Trump claims he has an absolute right to pardon himself, does he? The failing New York Times has an anonymous editorial. Can you believe it? Uh, the question of self-pardons is something I've never analyzed. So this is interesting, that the president is saying it's treason. Whoever wrote this is being incredibly self-indulgent. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Now, as someone who has a vegan news diet, I live the podcast, print, Twitter lifestyle, and mostly ignore cable news. I have to say, I wouldn't have missed the video from the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings for the world. In particular, steely-eyed Senator Kamala Harris going at Kavanaugh on the question of whether he had conferred with Trump's lawyer's firm on the matter of the Mueller investigation was a piece of TV for the ages. Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Uh, Be sure about your answer, sir. Um, well, I'm not remembering, but if you have something you want to... Kavanaugh's Irish complexion runs the gamut from petal rose to scarlet in kind of patches as he seems to writhe under her interrogation. Yes or no? Well, is there a person you're talking about? I'm asking you a very direct question, yes or no. Is he talking to Trump's lawyer about the Mueller investigation? I heard a yes in the complexion vagaries as an Irish-American myself. I know how to read our faces, but I urge you to watch and see for yourself in the video. Also, If this hearing is on the main stage in the Trump Times carnival, why are we paying attention to his sideshow, that New York Times op-ed by anonymous Trump officials who hate their boss? Or is that the main event, since the confirmation of Kavanaugh seems to be foregone? My guest today to talk about all of this is none other than Slate's own Dahlia Lithwick. Slate's own, but really no one owns Dahlia, who's the most astute and free-thinking observer of the Supreme Court in business today. She is the host, of course, of Amicus for Slate. Next week, I'm going to hear her interview Elena Kagan at the Hannah Senesh School in Brooklyn, and I can't wait to talk to her today about Kavanaugh, our abnormal times, and in passing, that New York Times op-ed. I'll be back with Dahlia in just a minute, but first, the tweets. The already discredited Woodward book, So Many Lies, and Phony Sources has me calling Jeff Sessions mentally retarded and a dumb Southerner. I said neither. Never use those terms on anyone, including Jeff. And being a Southerner is a great thing. He made this up to divide. Isn't it a shame that someone can write an article or book, totally make up the stories, and form a picture of a person that is literally 
the exact opposite of the fact and get away with it without retribution or cost. Don't know why Washington politicians don't change libel laws. Does the so-called senior official really exist, or is it just the failing New York Times with another phony source? If the gutless, anonymous person does indeed exist, the Times must, for national security purposes, turn him, her, over to the government at once. Treason. I'm draining the swamp, and the swamp is trying to fight back. Don't worry, we will win. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One last thing before we jump into the interview. On Saturday, September 29th, we'll be live from Austin, Texas for Slate Day. Slate Day is a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. We'll be there keeping Austin weird alongside the Political Gab Fest team, Leon Krause, who you heard guest host an episode of this show, and Mike Pesca of The Gist. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in Austin, and our guest we can finally announce is The Washington Post's Ashley Parker. She's been on the show before and she's amazing. So get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live. Joining me now to chat about the Kavanaugh hearings and that weird New York Times op-ed is somebody who will also be at the Texas Tribune Festival with us for a live episode of her show, Amicus. This, of course, is Dahlia Lithwick. Hey, Dahlia, welcome. Thank you for having me. Where are you? <laughs> I think I'm in Brooklyn. Oh, I'm in Brooklyn. You're yeah. home. I, this is my first confirmation hearing of six. I think this is my sixth Supreme Court confirmation hearing that I am not doing from the chamber. Um, what? There's so much to dig into. I want to dispatch with the idea, the the New York Times op-ed, because it's uh, that's so um, thrilling to talk about, and then get into the Kavanaugh hearing. What do you think of this op-ed, supposedly by some kind of resistance figures in the administration? You know, I, I tend to be in the camp that says this is not real resistance and also that appropriating the language of resistance to say that actually sticking around and continuing the smash and grab, but calling it resistance because you're making sure the president doesn't nuke people is not, in fact, good deployment of the word resistance. Mm. That's just looting. Yeah. Um, and then I guess trying to get a, a book deal um, to go with your looting. So I'm not I'm not a huge fan. And I think, you know, in my endless sort of Masha Gessen quest to not normalize things, I think the idea that we can call it heroic to stick around and make sure that a person we deem to be demonstrably unfit 
does all the things we like and not the things we don't like. I just think normalizing that as an idea of resistance is really, really scary and pernicious. It. I mean, there was something... Um Whatever the decision, the choice by this by this little clique of people to stay around and imagine that they're keeping the republic safe, both for tax cuts and for and from nuclear annihilation, it I think as a as a, as a news piece, as an op ed, it was pretty compelling. Just hearing actual Trumpites talk about the danger, not never Trumpers, not I don't know what the moral implications of their decision is, but um, but I found this a pretty interesting document. It's interesting. It's funny, Virginia, of all people, I was thinking of you, because do you remember um, this past year when we went through our little A.O. Hirschman uh, fangirl yes, thing? And yes. You remember we were both obsessed with, with this sort of... Exit voice and loyalty, big, which... Right. Exactly. And, and, and I remember having more than one conversation with you about, you know, what is the theme between sticking around and making sure things don't get worse and taking some kind of meaningful action. And it just feels as though A.O. Hirschman is like pulsing in my ears right now saying, um, whatever this is, it's not exit or voice or loyalty. It's just normalizing. It's just saying instead of doing the 25th Amendment solution, doing the thing that is demonstrably brave, which is making this your resignation letter, you're just somehow sticking around to move papers off the table so that he doesn't nuke anyone. And I and I guess I just, you know, the reason I'm freaked out is because if you think about what's happening literally across the street in the Senate, where you have the Judiciary Committee, you know, you have the House Judiciary Committee, you have these entities that are tasked with oversight of, you know, constitutional norms, and they're pretending nothing is wrong. And I, I wrote a little bit about this this week, but I, I think that the idea that we're just going to treat Everyone is going to treat it as though we can cordon off this crazy person and let him, you know, howl at the moon and like go poo poo with his little guns. But it's okay because everyone else is going to use institutional norms to pretend that things are fine. I think that's really dangerous. You know, it's been proposed that the op-ed was meant to distract from the bad news of, from the from the Woodward book. What's interesting to me about that is that uses one group of insiders complaining that the president is dangerous to distract from another group of insiders complaining that the president is dangerous. I think we can confidently assert now that anyone who has worked with him thinks the president is extremely dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, I, I would go further and say there, there's two pieces of this that are nuts. One is like you're not paranoid if everyone's really out to get you. I mean, all this is doing is amply materializing the president's fear about the New York Times and about the deep state and that there is this cabal of traitors, I think he calls them snakes, inside the White House working to undermine him. So in a weird way, all this is doing is feeding his sense that there is this monstrous secret effort to undermine him. And I'm like, oh, my God, all we're doing is is making all of his crazy come true. Mm. And that scares me. But but more pointedly, Virginia, I mean, I just think if we are going to be mollified by the promise that unelected, unnamed, shadowy cabinet officials are taking care of stuff, and we should just trust them to take care of the right stuff and to 
triage what matters and what doesn't. I mean, that's that's not a good place for us to be mollified. It, yeah. Well, last time I think you were here, you said we can't just we can't it, the lawyers aren't going to save us. The judiciary is not going to save us. It's some kind of deep state or they call themselves steady state patriots in the um, in the administration are not going to save us. So let's go to what might save us, which is possibly someone in the chamber like fearsome Kamala Harris interrogating Brett Kavanaugh yesterday. What do you make of what's going on down there? I don't want to get distracted. If the op-ed was, is a White House distraction from the bigger news about the Kavanaugh confirmation, then let's not get distracted. Uh, let's, t- let's talk about Kavanaugh. Right. Um, with the huge caveat that this is not normal. And if you listen to you know Amy Klobuchar, if you listen to Maisie Hirono, what you hear one senator after the other on the Democrat side saying, this is not normal. And there's so many layers of that. You know, One layer is the one we've talked about all summer. It is not normal for an unindicted conspirator um, to be handpicking the person uh, who may someday rule on incredibly close calls about executive power. Can the president pardon himself? Can the president uh, obstruct? Uh, What does the unitary executive mean in terms of obstruction of justice? So there are these questions, which, by the way, Brett Kavanaugh absolutely refuses to answer. He will not even, he says they're hypotheticals. He won't even, he's never thought about whether the president can pardon himself. So, so bracket just the sheer insanity that Mm -hmm. the president handpicks somebody who has one of the most expansive written records on unitary executive theory on, you know, his thought that maybe, you know, U.S. v. Nixon was wrongly decided. Okay, that's crazy. And the fact that uh, Kavanaugh won't speak to any of that is also crazy. And then bracket the insanity of having less than a tenth of his written records, right? This has not happened in any normal fashion. The National Archives said we can't possibly vet his records in time for this hearing. And so let's just put a Republican lawyer uh, in charge of vetting. Uh, and here's Bill Burke, who, by the way, represents, you know, Don McGahn and, you know, Rents pre. So that guy's vetting records. So so that's nuts. You're and talking we, about that now that like we're told tens of thousands of documents showing Kavanaugh's record on, when he worked for George W. Bush. Is that is that all there is? No, that's part of it. That's, okay. I mean, there's the, the months when he's the staff secretary that we have seen nothing of. And, you know, there's a, a legitimate fight, I guess, about whether that's just ministerial and we don't need to see his documents or whether um, there are things that matter, but we don't know. And then there are thousands and thousands of pages that are deemed privileged by the Trump White House. Uh, and then there are just these strange documents floating around that are just called confidential or committee confidential that, you know, even Democrats on the committee are not sure what they don't have. And and one of the things that was super interesting yesterday is is when Democrats are trying to, ask, I mean, at some point, Cory Booker was asking about documents that may or may not have been privileged. We don't mm-hmm. know. But just the sheer mayhem of not having even a fraction of the record. And it, it seems like it's the salient. Do people care that that we don't have uh, the totality of the record? But then you end up with Brett Kavanaugh not able to answer because he doesn't know what the documents are that that they're using to question him. So it's it's just so unseemly. But I guess I would just say, even if you put aside all the madness of rushing through this confirmation, Virginia, rushing through a confirmation of someone who will not um, recuse himself if these issues come before him, 
the, the White House itself is in total crisis, and mm-hmm. you would never know it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Germany. There's just, I kept waiting yesterday for somebody to read that op-ed into the record and say, Judge Kavanaugh, do you think what's happening is normal? Do you have any thoughts on the 25th Amendment? Like, can we talk about what's going on? But it's almost as though the more nutty the world is, the more the Judiciary Committee wants to act like we're just doing our jobs, ma'am. So I want to talk about the, uh, like, I want to get back to Kamala Harris. I know Um, you keep trying to talk about the hearing and I keep talking about the damn op-ed. I'm sorry. I'm done. No, 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 no. (laughs) I I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I get, we might part company on whether the op-ed is a normalizing document or is an abnormalizing document, you know? Kamala Harris will not normalize uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, tell me about this question she asked him about whether he had discussed, with whom he had discussed the Mueller investigation. Because that's a pretty interesting piece of tape. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think she didn't close the deal. And if you were watching, it it looked a lot like, you know, earlier in the day, Senator Pat Leahy, I think, had a similar back and forth about, you know, those stolen Manny Miranda documents and whether somehow Judge Kavanaugh had, you know, when he was working in the White House and was uh, pushing through Bush nominees, whether he trafficked in these stolen documents. And again, that there's a feeling a little bit in what um, Senator Harris was doing that she there is a piece of paper somewhere that 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 proves, I think, uh, in her mind that Judge Kavanaugh had conversations with somebody at Mark Kasowitz's law firm, um, and she was pushing him, pushing him, pushing him to answer whether he had had such conversations. And he, I think, I mean, looked simultaneously deer in the headlights, terrified, but also not unreasonably said, you know, I have lots of conversations with lots of people. Like, is there someone specific you're thinking of that I had a conversation? And I think it's either going to turn out to be a sublime gotcha moment, Mm. uh, or it's going to look like she was fishing and and trying to gotcha him uh, in the hopes that some actual proof will come out. And, and it's hard to know right now because she certainly didn't gotcha him at the end of it. She she terrified him and then walked away. And so I think, you know, it it, it, it looks to me as though her staff was saying, no, they, they have a beat on something, but mm-hmm. it's not clear that they have it. And so I, I think in a, a funny way, you know, and Cory Booker was doing something similar. Uh, so, so I think there's a way in which, was it incredibly dramatic. Yes, I think Harris's entire cross-examination was just gobsmacking, including asking, you know, if there are laws that regulate men's <laughs> yeah. uh, bodies. You know, there were so many moments. Uh, I think her discussion uh, about privacy uh, with him was devastating. Uh, her discussion with him about Charlottesville was devastating. And so I think she certainly, certainly looked like she was rough him up. But the Kasowitz thing, boy, I, I would love to know whether she can corroborate the thing that she was intimating. I mean, she is just such a wily prosecutor and just remind me never to cut in line in front of her at the airport or whatever, because <laughs> I just would not like to be savaged by her that way. I mean, she said you have an impeccable memory to Kavanaugh. And he would know. The Kazowitz firm is notorious. He, we've had people talk about him on the show. I really doubt that. Basically, I, I, I believe he spoke to someone 
I mean, I just that seemed like hemming and hawing to me, absurd hemming and hawing to me that made Kamala Harris's point. And to boot, I think Ron Fine tweeted um, shortly after that, that despite what Senator Lee was suggesting, that there are hundreds and hundreds of lawyers at this firm, there's actually only seven lawyers in the D.C. branch of the office. So, you know, the sort of the, the implication that, uh, you know, you can't expect him to know the name of every single lawyer who works in that firm if there are only seven. Not unreasonable. So, so again, I think it's it's one of those things, and and um, it's either going to turn into a tremendous gotcha, or it's going to turn into she was fishing and couldn't smoke out the thing she's looking for. But I agree with you. I think as a way of, and and I would say the same thing by the way about the Leahy discussion uh, when when Pat Leahy was quizzing him about those stolen documents. It it it's 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 not really going to be hugely salient for people who are watching the clips. Mm-hmm. What it goes to is this idea that this person is a way, way, way insider, that he's got incredibly close relationships with, you know, despite the fact that he seemed to suggest yesterday that he had doesn't even know what the Federalist Society does, you know, that he's a lifer in these circles with the Federalist Society, with Heritage, with, you know, the Republican Party, and that I think that to the extent that Kamala Harris was trying to say, this is a person who has played on this team for a long, 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 mm-hmm. long time. And his, you know, he is, um, I think, you know, the sort of where's Waldo or the Zelig of, uh, you know, every single Republican scandal of the past, you know, a couple of decades. And I think it's a way of saying, look, he's in this club. And that's not trivial, again, if the club is the very thing right now that's protecting a president who's not fit to be president. What do you, what have you been able to divine in the tea leaves about his position on the law, especially on Roe versus Wade? Um, Some of the things that Judge Kavanaugh has done sort of recently um, are really interesting because, and Judge Blumenthal makes this point um, yesterday where he says, you know, you weren't on the initial Trump shortlist, and then you weren't on the longer shortlist, and then you weren't on the list, and suddenly you popped up on the list. And what happened uh, that made you super attractive after having been ignored? That's almost the time that's interesting. That's when, you know, the speech is about, you know, rank, uh, rank uh, dissent and, you know, that, that Nixon, U.S. v. Nixon may have been wrongly decided. That's, if you look at the, I'm going to say the safe word, lodestar, mm. uh, which is this Garza case, um, which is uh, the young uh, migrant in Texas who is denied an abortion. And he writes uh, with all these, you know, words, by the way, abortion on demand is, is kind of a signal that, that when he's writing, he's maybe auditioning and he wants to be on the shortlist. Mm. But if you look at a lot of the more recent stuff that he's done, uh, the signaling is really, really strong. And it's almost the most interesting part of this whole drama that somebody who was incredibly careful for most of his judicial career, uh, seemed to sort of be elbowing his way into the conversation in the last year. And, and Garza may be the best example of that, where it's just full of, if you read his opinions, it's full of signaling that, no, no, I'm really serious about calling into doubt whether Roe is precedent, calling into doubt uh, whether the government can set up extra barriers for this teenager who's already been given a judicial bypass. She should have been allowed by 
any construction of the law uh, to go forward with her abortion. And here's Judge Kavanaugh signaling that, no, 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 the government can throw up a a new test that he's inventing on the fly. And so I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that even though he will not speak to it in the hearings, uh, his record, and particularly his record in the last uh, year or so, is really telling. And um, the same, uh, by the way, about guns and his weird distortion of the the idea in Heller, the gun case, that guns that are in common uh, usage uh, are, are somehow blessed uh, under Heller and, and, and his distortion of the test that Scalia held out there. I'm, I'm saying it in a really compressed way, and I'm, I'm not being super clear, but I think the point is simply that even if we take out the layer here, which is Brett Kavanaugh is a nice guy, stipulated. He's a great guy. He loves his family. Everyone loves him. Take all that out. He loves his family? Oh, forget about it. I mean, well, he, let's he really, just go straight really to confirm him. Okay. Uh, he yeah. and Senator Tillis had a very tender colloquy about which of his daughters was a better hugger last night. And I just thought, my God, really, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, so take out that he's a nice guy. Nobody doubts it. And take out the fact that he won't talk about anything. Nobody doubted that. There's an immense judicial record here. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that his judicial record has been really, really clear about where he is on abortion and guns and executive power and, um, you know, the deregulatory project and, you know, doing away with um, agency and, and uh, you know, doing away and, and a very, very expansive view of the unitary executive. I mean, those things are not uh, in question. And so then it's just... I'm sorry, this is so long-winded. You can Mm-mm. tell I haven't been sleeping. But I, I think what is interesting to me, and maybe we should just talk about for a second, is if we know who he is and why he was picked and what he's going to do, and I think that is all perfectly clear, then the question is, what does it do to have him be called a hater of women, a coddler of Alex Kaczynski, mm-hmm. a person who hates the environment, a person who is sucking up to the president. And and what worries me about the confirmation process is that this will take somebody who's a very, very conservative jurist, probably to the right of Sam Alito, uh, and push him further to the right. Uh, he's going to come out of this thinking that all the women's groups and the environmental groups and the unions um, hate him. Uh, and that is, if you read Clarence Thomas's autobiography, it is a lament of how all these groups that will litigate in front of him for decades tried to humiliate him. And that's, I think, my very long-winded answer to what scares me the most about this already incredibly screwed up process. As the, you know, the cameras on C-SPAN, at least, swing back and forth from this very, um, you know, studiedly civilized um, Robert's Rules style room to this, like, these unruly margins where the protesters are. What does that, what does that look like to you? And I mean, is that atypical to have, to have that, um, that many protesters and, and that loud and disruptive? It, it, it's funny because on the Slate legal channel, uh, the Slack channel, where we were talking about this, we were trying to figure out the under-over on protests. And I said, you know, based on, on Gorsuch last year, I'd go for three protests a day, you know, four. And that was just completely shattered within the first 10 minutes uh, of the first, you know, we've never, ever, ever, ever 
seen anything like the numbers. And, and, and maybe just worth flagging, I know at least on the first day, 70 people were arrested, say, at the Capitol Police, uh, of which 65 were women. Here are actual women getting dragged physically out of the room, screaming, mm-hmm. you know, about their health care. Some of them are disabled. They're screaming about their bodies and their reproductive rights, and they're getting dragged out as senators roll their eyes. I mean, Virginia, the just the spectacle of we're going to talk in abstractions about women and reproductive rights and health care and the Affordable Care Act and pre-existing conditions. And actual human American women who have stood in line to get in this chamber are screaming and holding up, you know, pictures of coat hangers. And it's just, again, the sort of id superego thing going on. It just melts my brain. Yeah, I mean, th- those those images are well worth looking at. I mean, be a hero, vote no. I mean, they they are um, incredibly powerful. I mean, it's like some of the images at the border that it finally, talk about not normalizing, you know, just keep, like disruption, disruption, just civil disobedience, um, never stop. And yeah, as the, as the um, I mean, there's the normalizing, you're right, like as the, assembled mostly white men in the room are looking down, won't look over, are shutting it out. Well, I think that they are finding solace in their norms and their rules and the idea that we're supposed to be respectful. I mean, I think it was so emblematic. There are so many things that are so weird, but one of the things that to me was really emblematic of the problem was Chuck Grassley trying to cure the fact that the president was tweeting that it should be illegal to protest. And so here's Chuck Grassley being like, all right, I guess I'm going to say nice things about free speech. But they hate this because in their worldview, all the norms of how civil hearings are conducted are being shattered. But they're being shattered not because people, you know, hate the Senate or hate democracy, but they've just been, by virtue of everything that has gone on in the last two years and this ongoing process, by the way, in the Supreme Court to erode voting rights, to erode, you know, to, to, to prop up gerrymandering, to uh, allow for just overt racial and, and, and uh, 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 vote suppression. All of that is happening in the courts. And so when people take their actual bodies in and say, no, it doesn't work that the Chamber of Commerce wins every damn time. It doesn't work that you're eviscerating unions and calling it free speech. Uh, I can understand how senators who put so much stock in these John McCain notions of bipartisanship and civility and, you know, in during relationships that transcend politics. This is horrifying to them. But I think that what you're hearing is this just shriek of actual people who are saying, I'm here, I'm in this room. And, you know, you can call it normalization or you can just call it the comfort we try to take in our institutions when everything else is falling apart. But I think taking comfort in institutions that are part of the problem is becoming part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for um, yeah bringing us down to a sad. It always ends like I always want it to end like a pop novel, and it uh, our conversations always end like Anna Karenina or something. Yeah, like, I know. Um, it's bad. It's the smoldering ash heap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But a good not to pretend. Um, Dahlia, I'll like I'll see you in text messages, and I hope that you. Um, I hope we both endure 
and the Republic. Thanks for everything you do, Virginia. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Follow us at Real Trumpcast on Twitter. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. And the voice of Donald Trump is, as always, John D. Domenico. I'm Virginia Heffernan, and thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Treason. 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 <laughs> Treason? <laughs>